This morning's scripture reader comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. Hear the word of the Lord. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preachings were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It's okay to uh, fan yourselves or whatever you need to do. (laughs) I um, almost wore shorts, never broken that barrier before. And uh, Patty said, um, maybe you don't want to. (laughs) Might be a distraction. (laughs) You know, you can take that word distraction two different ways. I prefer my way, but um, anyway, it is hot, and the first service was warm, and now we're really in the, so I I get it if you have to do this. I want to uh, uh, just introduce a thought, and that is that when you combine uh, spiritual immaturity with Christian faith, something really wonderful can happen or something really awful can happen. And so the wonderful thing would be that you become conformed which the scriptures say that God's purpose for each human being is that they become conformed to the image of Christ, meaning they will look more, act more, be more like Jesus. That's the goal, folks. If you haven't heard that before, that's the goal. The other way, the awful way, would be if you conform the Christian message to your emotional immaturity and you mix those things together and you end up with some really, really hurtful stuff. And I I say this out of my own uh, experience, both doing that and uh, watching it done. Um, There's some humor here I want to start with because uh, any country western music fans out there? This is a very obscure, not not one? (laughs) Not one? Hey, this is the right church for me because I'm, oh, there's one. All right. You know, I always knew this guy's weird. Now I know why. Yeah. All right. So you probably don't... Uh, Flatlanders, Dan, have you ever heard of the Flatlanders? Okay, you are a true fan then, because they're, they're rather obscure, but they're from Lubbock, Texas, and uh, I have a quote from one of them, which uh, I, I love this quote. It's great. In Lubbock, we grew up with two main things. God loves you, and he's going to send you to hell. There you go. Figure that one out. And that sex is bad and dirty and nasty and awful, and you should save it for the one you love. <laughs> And then he says, you wonder why we're a little crazy down here in Lubbock, right? 
Now, that's funny, but there's probably some truth to that, and uh, not just in Lubbock either, but the, there's emotional immaturity mixed in with some, some faith there, and uh, it can be very hurtful. So we might just say, you wonder why we're all crazy. You might also say, wonder why we're all hurt. Um, so let me give you a, a, a story of a woman that um, I, used, I did pastor in previous lifetime sort of thing. And uh, she was one of the, a person, and I don't mean to dismiss her at all, but she had an intense spiritual hyper faith. And uh, an example would be, and I'm not exaggerating, is that she would drop on her knees and pray anywhere. Grocery lines, health club, wherever, and that just gives you a little bit of, of clue into what you know how intense her faith was and how she just let it rip wherever she was. Now, there were, I noticed over time that there were two things that happened in the wake of her faith, and um, they were hurtful. One is that she would get very close to other friends, women particularly, who were a little like-minded or like, you know, we're all wired differently, but, but um, in, very intense in their spirituality. And then I would notice how these relationships would fall apart and they wouldn't talk to each other. Not a good thing. That's, that's a definition of hurt when you don't talk to another person. It's not good. If you didn't know, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. So. And then I watched in her family life, and these are people that couldn't walk away from her, but maybe wanted to. The, the kids, how they rolled their eyes at mom, and the husband did not, he, he just sort of shook his head, and one of her sons walked away from the faith. I don't know what's happened since, but it, had to, it seemed like it had to do with the, her overbearing nature. I've actually done a little bit of study on this, uh, a reading on it, and there's a high correlation between atheists and Christian homes, believe it or not. I mean, it's not, I mean, I don't think you, you probably know somebody in that category, that people who grew up in a Christian home, at least some of them have become famous atheists, including Frederick Nietzsche, who is on everybody's, you know, he's like the greatest atheist ever, or whatever list, uh, not, not something you'd want to be on, but uh, you wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning if you were, or whatever. So Frederick, and then Ernest Hemingway, who was one of my favorite authors in, uh, in high school and college, and it, it, the story of Hemingway, his mother was a very committed evangelical Christian, but she was also overbearing, and he grew to hate his mother, I mean, and that's not too strong a language, to hate his mother and then walk away from the faith that she represented, until he became a Roman Catholic, which he did because he needed to marry a woman, one of his many wives, but that, you can read about Hemingway wherever you want, interesting life. Macho man. Uh, one of the things that, with, with Hemingway is that his mother dressed him as a little girl when he was a boy. And if you read his books, he's anything but girly. He's, he's, he always tries to project himself as macho. I've told you way too much about him, but um, what Paul is saying here in, in the letter to the Corinthians is it's written to a group of people who are emotionally unhealthy, more or less. We don't know the particular people here. And last week we looked at the spiritual arrogance that is part of that, and today the spiritual immaturity that is part of that. And they didn't understand the word psychology. The word psychology is roughly 100 years old, a little bit more. But you get an insight into the, the psychological stuff that got connected with the spiritual stuff and the, the hurt that it was causing people in 55 AD. And Paul has this little thing that he does 
He makes the main thing the main thing. That's where he's going to bring some health to these people. Shouldn't surprise us. So I want to give you that um, overview. I'm not, I'm not going to stick to this uh, too much, but we're going to walk through these ten verses, not keeping the main thing. The main thing is they get hurt by that. They're in pursuit of a deeper truth. They get, they're hurt because of that, and they're not okay with some level of mystery. And you have to be okay with a level of mystery to walk by faith. All right. So uh, this is the first five verses. We'll start here and look for the main thing. And if you can, if you can pull it out, I, I'll give you a hint. Paul says, it's the one thing. What is the main thing? What's the one thing? You can shout it out. Christ, let's just say Christ and him crucified. I mean, for Paul, that's the main thing. Okay, so we'll just get the, let's just say it together. For I resolved to, come on, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's Paul's main thing. And what he's trying to do is they had learned that at some point, but they've gotten away from it. So what Paul does in, in verse uh, 1 and 2 I'm sorry, in verse 1 is, if I can find it and read it for you, he makes the claim that he's really not all that great of a speaker. He says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. Uh, By the way, wisdom is their key word. That's the word they like to claim, that they have this new wisdom. And I did not come to you with superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. We have this image of Paul being this great speaker. I don't think he's just being, uh, you know, it's not false humility here or putting himself down to make himself look good or anything like that. He really wasn't that great of a speaker. Be okay with that. Are you okay with that? He was a great writer. And, uh, but maybe, you know, some people have speculated that he, uh, he, he stuttered uh, or whatever, he had a lisp, and, and we don't know, it's speculation, but just take it at face value that he was not that great of a speaker. So what was the secret to his, what, what's the right word here, his effectiveness, his fruitfulness in his ministry? Well, he tells you right here that he's, he's focused in on one thing. What is it? I, it? It's Christ and him crucified. That's the content of his message. But the other part of what makes him an effective speaker and I'm telling you, this is the, <laughs> just as much a main thing is he mentions it in verse 4 that it was, by a dem- it was a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. That when Paul talks about that, the Holy Spirit, who loves to talk about that to the human heart, opens up human hearts, opens up human ears, and they, it, it, something happens. It's, it's this kerygma thing is the Greek word for it. Uh, it's a catalytic event in the human heart when... We talk about Christ being crucified and the Holy Spirit comes in and he opens up hearts that were once cold, dark, closed. He opens them up to this message. And it's not a shallow message. This is a deep, deep message that you will never come to the end to. You preach it to yourself every day, basically. It is not the ABC of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. You renew yourself in the gospel. Christ and him crucified. So that's where Paul goes. That's where he has his effectiveness. Now, over the years, uh, I've had people say to me, uh, Mark, why do you always talk about Jesus? (laughs) And... uh, 
and I'll, I'll explain that better, but Jesus. Why do you talk about Jesus? And why do you talk about the cross so much? What I would re- There's two variations on this theme. One is people who say, I would really like more practical help for you know, my marriage or my parenting or something like that. And my response to them is that there, is there anything more practical than talking about Jesus, who isn't just interested in changing your behavior, but changing your heart from which that behavior comes? If you renew yourself in Jesus, you will be a better spouse. You will be a better parent. It has to do with human relationships, and Jesus gives us great insight. Not just great insight, but, but this Holy Spirit thing. This, he gives us the power to change our lives. So that's, that's one thing I've heard. The other thing that I've heard is it has to do with spirituality, which is really where the Corinthians were in their stuff. People will say, you, you always talk about Jesus and the cross. I want to hear something that is more deeper or more deep. I want to hear something more uh, esoteric or secret or give me something else that fascinates me. I, I, do, I, I don't want to just stick to the basics. I want to go deeper. Okay. So my response, you already picked up on it, is there's nothing deeper than this. And that when we get away from this, we get into all kinds of, of trouble. Uh, when we make something else the main thing. And it produces usually some kind of a spiritual elitism in groups, I've noticed. So I'm going to give you just a, a little bit of preview of coming attractions here. This is a spoiler alert, so you, you can plug your ears if you want or whatever. But um, don't, don't do that. No, you need to hear this. Uh, from chapter 6 of this same letter that Paul is writing, he talks about uh, husbands who have discovered a new, deeper truth. And here's the new, deeper truth. That our bodies are not really part of our essence. That our essence is really a spiritual essence. Now, doesn't that sound spiritual? It sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, it almost sounds right. But the problem is it's not really biblical, (laughs) if I can put it that way. There are lots of spiritualities in this world that would say that. But biblical spirituality includes the body, The body is really, really important to your spirituality. But since the husbands believed that that the body was kind of a throwaway thing, that you just sort of, it didn't matter what you did with the body, the way they interpreted that doctrine was they would go to the prostitutes. What the heck? Doesn't matter, right? If your spirit is what is important, you can do whatever you want with your body. That's how they interpreted that truth. Truth, quotes. Then we go to chapter 7 and we discover that wives have a different interpretation of the same truth and that is that to truly be spiritual you have to keep your bodies away from your husbands, if you know what I mean. And so they were denying their husbands uh, intimacy and which may have some bearing on why the husbands were going to the prostitutes as well. But you can see the, the mix up there. The crazy thing, the hurt people, think of kids being hurt, husbands, wives being hurt. This is why... Paul preaches Christ and him crucified, and he doesn't just give advice on marriage and parenting. If he does give advice on marriage and parenting, he connects it with Christ being crucified for them. And when you lose that connection, all kinds of hurt can come into our lives. So, point number one. 
Now let's go to verses 6 through 8 and see what Paul does uh, with some of their language as they pursue this deeper truth. He picks up on some of their language and turns it back around on them. We remember that they love the word wisdom, and so he begins in verse 6. We do, however, Paul, meaning Paul and his entourage, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. There is a wisdom among the mature. You guys are not the mature, but there is a wisdom that does that. So he's kind of using their language, a little bit sarcastically maybe. But it is not the wisdom of this age, which by implication he's saying you have connected with, or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So Paul is, is, there's a big indictment here of the way they are using wisdom. He says, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom. Secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So what Paul is saying here, it, well, as, as people who are sitting there in Corinth hear this letter being read, they're thinking secret wisdom. Paul has secret wisdom too. We better listen up on the edge of our chairs. Secret wisdom. We, this is a workshop we can go to and learn what no one else knows so we can be better and higher and prouder because <laughs> knowledge tends to puff us up, Paul will say in chapter 8 of this letter. Knowledge puffs us up. Knowledge gives us power. Knowledge is power, we know that. And, and so they're in pursuit of this. They want this special secret wisdom. But when Paul says secret wisdom, he's referring to something totally different than what they're thinking. He's referring to this right here. Christ and him crucified, and it was hidden. For, from the beginning of time, it was hidden, but it has now been revealed. Paul says the same thing in, in uh, Colossians 1.26, that that which was hidden has now been revealed. And there's a mystery to it. But the mystery has to do with its hiddenness more than it is with its content. We can understand Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can grasp that. But it was now been revealed. After all this time, it has been revealed. It was hidden. Now it's made known. And so that's what Paul is getting at when he says secret wisdom. Uh, When Peter writes about this secret wisdom. He says that angels long to look into it. They don't, they just marvel that God would become enfleshed, that God would take on a human body. Remember what the Corinthians have said about the body. It's not spiritual. And yet God has taken on a human body. Is God spiritual? Do you see, you see how they're missing it here? And in in chapter 15 of this letter, Paul will say, not only did Jesus Christ take on a body, not only did nails really, really pierce his flesh, but his body was raised from the dead. If you don't love your body, which most of us don't, I find most of us are pretty good critics of our bodies. Am I right? Am I the only one? I know you're thinking, oh, but his body, never mind. There's a reason why I'm not wearing shorts, you know? But... Just these bodies will be resurrected. You are stuck with your body. I hate to tell you this. It's good news, though, because you will, your body will be made new. As Christ's body was resurrected from the grave, so will our bodies. He's the firstborn in that way, and we will be renewed in our bodies. So get used to this body. It's not a throwaway thing. It's you. It's part of you. But it will be made new. That's the gospel. Well, uh, That's all wrapped up in that, what it means for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, um, let's get to his, where he goes with this last little thing here. 
that hasn't been understood by the rulers who crucified him. In verse 9 it says, as it is written, no eye has seen. I'll just get it up here for you because it's worth hovering over for a minute. No eye has seen what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Meaning, that last line will start there, the things God has prepared for those who give in to him, who are who have the Spirit speak to their hearts and are open and they take God into themselves and they live a new way for God. This, this really salvation, the, the eternal life that the Gospel of John talks about. So um, how do you get that eternal life? How do, how do you come to know it? And I want to just give you just a really quick course on epistemology, which is a long word meaning how we know things. And so if you remember back to a, like a one-on-one philosophy class, you'll probably hear some words. This is really going to be quick, but you have to, to understand what Paul is saying here. You, you need a little bit of help, I think. We, do, we all do. So uh, to know something is true. How do you know something is true? There's two ways throughout the history of this epistemology, of this knowledge of how we know things. There's two main candidates. One is called empiricism, meaning you know from empirical evidence by observing with your eyes and with your ear. You can learn a lot in life. There's nothing wrong with this. We learn tons in life. This is where science is really helpful, through the eyes and the ears. Uh, and it's you observe and you experiment and you experience things and you make you come to your conclusions. That's the scientific method. It's included in what Paul is saying. Then, uh, and by the way, that was Aristotle. That was it's called inductive reasoning. But there's another way, another candidate, and this was with Plato. It's called deductive reasoning, and that is that you start with something that is obvious to all in kind of an abstract form. It could be the word goodness or truth or something like that, and you just deduce from there, through reason, through your mind, what else is true. So you either start from the bottom and you work yourself up, or you start at the top and you work yourself down, and these are the two ways that we know things, either through rationalism, starting here, or empiricism down here. Aristotle and Plato. Okay, got it? And what Paul is saying is neither one of those ways of knowing will work when it comes to knowing who God is. That's the point. Those are the normal ways we learn things. There's nothing wrong with those things at all, except that when it comes to knowing who God is, they don't work. And then he adds, the way you know who God is, is by the Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit. You will not discover Christ and him crucified, where we were earlier, without the help of the Holy Spirit. Got that? I need a nod. Yeah, okay. Because I, I feel like I just took, put the professor hat on. I always, you know, I'm a little, I wonder if they got anything out of that. But uh, it's the Holy Spirit, though, who opens our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds. All right. So I'm going to give you an illustration, and I'll I'll close, of how this works. And this has to do with uh, some time spent in a a bar. How's that? You ready for that? After college, um, I was uh, kind of going back and forth between uh, Seattle, where I'd gone to school, and Olympia, which was my home. And I had my sister's boyfriend at the time. His name was Tom. He and I had become really good friends. He had graduated from Stanford, meaning... Supposed to be smart, right? And and he was. He was very good. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed spending time with him, and um, I liked the conversations that we had. And so we 
there's a there's a, a bar there in Olympia. It's called the East Side Club. I have no idea if it's there anymore. Uh, but 23 years old, and we would talk over beer. And I remember him saying that um, at the time, this was in the in the 70s, there was a big phenomenon out there called you can call it Sasquatch or Bigfoot. You, you know, and people were just fascinated. I know it's it's like UFOs or anything like that, paranormal. But there was this, and there would be these blurry, you know, kind of like something moving there, but you weren't sure what it was, kind of things on video. And Tom was really, really fascinated by this. And he went on and on and on. He'd done all the research, you know, like a Stanford grad would do, or I guess. And I remember just pausing one night and saying, you know, I'm just not that interested. And at the time, I was doing a little exploration about, of the New Testament. And I said, you know, if I'm going to spend time, you did, you did a lot of research there. If I'm going to spend time on trying to figure something out, I want to know about Jesus. This is before I was a Christian, right? And I said that in a bar. <laughs> I want to know about Jesus. Well, that, I want to know if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, because it has way more, uh, I don't care about Sasquatch, doesn't mean it, what so what if he's alive or dead or what all it doesn't matter but it does matter this whole question about Jesus so you can tell I was kind of exploring the Holy Spirit was doing some work there between beers or whatever you know and um, so then another night we were we were talking and he said we well we were together on this one we were just kind of at this platonic level with meaning the more rational like you know, ideas and abstract thoughts about who God is or whatever, what life is all about. And I remember pausing and saying to him, I said, Tom, I don't know. I mean, we're just here with two guys in a bar kind of deal. And uh, I said, all I, all I know is that if there is a God, and I don't, I'm not sure there is, but if there is a God, he, he probably would not require college graduates to discover him. I mean, you, you could, a child could discover who he was or a person who doesn't have much of an education could discover who he was. Now, I said that, and I think at the time, I didn't realize it, but it's, you know, I was right. I, I, mean, I'm, I, I mean, I say that by, because of what the Bible says, which I didn't know at the time, but the Bible is saying the same thing, that it's by the Holy Spirit that you know these things. And the Holy Spirit will even go into a bar with a crazy, mixed-up 23-year-old and reveal truth. It's true, but it's by the Spirit. And eventually I came to understand the conviction of the Spirit that comes with that phrase, it is Christ and Him crucified, the main thing. And when I, when I as, a, as somebody who follows Christ, when I live into that verse, when I live into the Christ and Him crucified verse daily, not once, but every day, dying to myself, I'm a better husband, I'm a better father, I'm a better pastor, what else can I say? That verse is the key to build your life around. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And if you don't, you will hurt people. Lord, come into our hearts again. Refresh us, renew us with Your voice. May we recognize the voice of Your Spirit who brings that message into our hearts fresh again today. The only thing that counts is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for us. Lord, may Your Spirit um, open the eyes of our heart, open the ears of our heart, open our minds. Because without that, on our own, with our own best thinking, we're not going to get anywhere in terms of understanding who you are. 
Oh, Lord, bring your healing power to us as we focus in on you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.